This is the legend of a man named Jonathan. Born and raised in Prince George, British Columbia, Canada, Jonathan enjoyed a peaceful, musical childhood. Having begun his violin lessons at a young age, Jonathan found great fulfillment and satisfaction in the world of classical music. Driven by such a strong passion, Jonathan decided to pursue a Bachelor of Music at McGill University in the mid-1990s. Early on, Jonathan would find his groove at McGill in an exciting music program and would even become Associate Principal Second Violin of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. Jonathan was happy. And then one day something extraordinary would happen. Something that would change his life forever. In 2002, just four years after graduating from McGill University, Jonathan would become concertmaster of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra at 25 years old. At the time, Jonathan was the youngest concertmaster of any major North American orchestra. Jonathan would serve as concertmaster until 2006, but he would also still serve as guest concertmaster with some of the greatest orchestras around the world. Jonathan would perform many great works from the world's greatest composers, and he would even perform under virtuosic conductors such as Charles Dutois, Sir Andrew Davis, and the great violin virtuoso Sir Yehudi Menuhin. It doesn't stop there. In 2011, Jonathan became concertmaster of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and he continues to serve in this capacity to this very day. He would become a founding member of the Juno Award-winning New Orford String Quartet, and he would be appointed as Associate Professor of Violin at the University of Toronto. Jonathan has taught and inspired the next generation of great violinists, including Person Leung. Jonathan has told the stories of great composers through his violin, but now it is time to tell his story, his adventures, his legend. This is the legend of Jonathan Crow. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the very, very beginning. What inspired you to pursue violin? Uh, it's a good question. You know, I I wanted to play an instrument, and I grew up in Prince George, BC, as you said. Um, and my parents were from England. They're from London and Oxford. And so they'd ended up in Prince George through various reasons. My dad got a job there teaching chemistry. But you can imagine that Prince George is a long way from London, England. It's a long way from Oxford. And, you know, it's, it's far away from other major centers. Prince George is a long way north. And my parents, I think, wanted the, the kids to, to play music. And at the time, there was a free Suzuki program in the school district. And so, like, they're like, great, this is a chance for my brother and my sister and, my, and me just to all learn music. And so I was enrolled. I actually wanted to play cello. Um, sadly, we had a Volkswagen Golf, which is a small car, an older brother and older sister, and the cello didn't really fit. So violin, it was for me. Nice, nice, nice. And as we would see, it would become the instrument of choice and the best instrument for you as well. Growing up, what were your favorite moments from growing up in Prince George? Um, Prince George is actually a great place to grow up. It's a beautiful city. I mean, sports, you can play hockey outside for probably half the year at the time. You go skiing, you know, half an hour away, there's Tabor Mountain, all these great ski hills that are pretty close. Um, I really enjoyed the music part of things because I enjoyed the communal aspect. 
I did play a little bit of piano, but I never was very good. And I didn't enjoy it as much, right? Because I was sitting in the practice room by myself, practicing the piano. I didn't get to hang out with my friends. I didn't get to play chamber music or orchestra. I loved my Suzuki violin group classes. It was me and a bunch of other six-year-olds running around, you know, kind of shaking our bows at people and having a great time. And then as I got older, playing in youth orchestra and then playing in the Prince George Symphony, which is a community orchestra, um, having a chance to do music, to interact with people, it was... It was everything that you get in a small town, right? Great community, good friends, a really close-knit society. Yeah, and, and that sort of answers my next question as well. I was about to ask, what were your favorite memories from your first violin lessons? As you mentioned, I would assume the communal aspect of it really like did a very positive impression on you as you were learning early on in your violin lessons back in those days. Yeah, and I would say as a pretty typical six-year-old boy back then, I wasn't, I wasn't prodigious in the way that it's like, okay, just go and practice and it's all you wanted to do. Well, you know, I wanted to go outside and play hockey. I wanted to run around and do stuff. Um, and the, the group classes kind of made it fun. We had all kinds of games, like, you know, kind of search for the rosin and you, you'd kind of like have to, somebody would hunt the hunt around the room to find the cake of rosin and you'd have to play louder and softer as they got closer. You know, my teachers did a great job of making it enjoyable, of making music something that wasn't just a slog to get through, but something that was really fun. And all of it was like that. I got to do great orchestras and stuff like that. And, you know, the breaks are the most fun because we had donuts. But anything that kind of keeps a kid engaged, I think, is wonderful. I always loved music, but at the age of six, you maybe need a little bit more than just the love of playing Twinkle to keep you engaged with something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what were the greatest challenges that you faced early on in your violin pursuits? I wouldn't think that there would be many, but I mean, if there were challenges, what were the greatest challenges that you faced back then? I mean, if you're speaking as a young age, I'm not really sure. I'm not I'm not sure a six-year-old boy thinks of things like as being challenging that way. You know, I was always fairly good at playing the violin. It was something that came easily to me. And I think part of it was because my sister, who's six years older than me, also played an instrument. So I would fall asleep at night hearing her practice pieces that were a step above mine. She's older and, and she was more advanced. And so basically every piece I picked up on the violin, I kind of already knew it because I'd heard her playing it for months. I was like, oh, I know how this piece goes. I'm sure it just kind of like irritated her to no end or like, you know, a little snotty little brother is like, oh, I can play this piece. It's easy for me. Um, but you don't think of challenges in that way. I'm, I'm sure there were challenges. I'm sure my parents saw way more challenges, you know, keeping me going, keeping it interesting, keeping me from fooling around too much. I'm sure those things were challenging, um, but I didn't have to deal with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, when I grew up, uh, we were talking a little bit before the, the the recording of this episode, but as as a pianist myself, I actually my mom was my piano teacher for mm -hmm. uh, most of my life. So there was never a shortage of practicing. It was it was seven days a week, you know, practicing, practicing, practicing. <laughs> so my parents always, yeah, they always. I wouldn't say they made me practice, but I could stop at any time. I could quit, but they said if you're going to play violin, you got to do it properly. You have to take it seriously, and you have to show up to your lessons. You have to show up prepared the way your teachers asked otherwise it's disrespectful yeah. and i always i never wanted to stop there were times that i would certainly have rather gone outside to play hockey or something just run around bike around the gravel bit but i like playing the violin and when it was put that way it's like okay if you're going to do it you have to do it properly i even as a kid i kind of understood that i'm like okay i get this i'll, I'll do my practice and then i'll go and bike around the gravel bit yeah yeah no absolutely that that's and that's the thing that i think a misconception that many people have in in with regards to music is the fact that it's oh it's like this super easy it's it's just you know 
it's just what you what you do is like a little like on the side a little activity thing but as you said it's something that you have to take with a lot of respect similar to how people would you know take hockey when, when they go right. play hockey i mean many especially here in canada with hockey being the pastime many people go into hockey because they have one day dreams of going to the nhl or even if not maybe not necessarily getting to that point they want to get better at it right it's not like oh yeah. just like shoot a couple pucks and you know, I don't care about the the, the the team dynamics or anything. Just shoot a couple pucks and that's it. No, it's it's. I mean, it's fun, but it's not just fun, right? So there's yeah, a lot and of I think there's a mix. It. Like it's fun to feel like you're doing something well. Like when you're playing hockey, like it's really fun to work on these team team skills, you know, and to develop that and to feel that you're getting better and that you're good at it. And nobody in the hockey team likes that one guy that just doesn't want to engage and just wants to do their own thing, right? That's not fun either. So I think. Considering, you know, you need to spend time at anything to get good at it and it can still be enjoyable, but it's not like it's one or the other. You can yeah. enjoy music and you can also take it seriously and work hard, but feel that you're getting something out of it and enjoy the process. Exactly, exactly. And in your case, you would go on to pursue music, a Bachelor of Music at McGill University. What inspired you to go down this route and to pursue music as a as a full-time thing, full-time career for you? And what made you choose music over math? Yeah, it's interesting when you say I found my passion about music, because when I was going to McGill, I was actually doing math at the same time. I was kind of doing a math minor on the side because I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. And, you know, it's always good to have options. You know, the, the problem with playing the violin, if you like just, you know, smash one finger accidentally, you can suddenly not be able to do it anymore forever. And so it's not you know, it was not kind of like a great idea for me to just like at the age of 18 to be like, I have no other options in life. I just have to do violin. I want to do my math as well. It was only maybe a little bit into my degree that I realized that it would be a bigger choice for me to give up the violin than to keep doing it. I'd done it since I was, since I was six and it was something that I could always remember doing. I couldn't think back to a time when I hadn't played the violin. And so to give that up would be like changing something I'd spent my entire life life working towards my entire life learning and at that point i'm like okay well if i can make it in the field that i'm going to i really enjoy this and you know i kept going with my math until i didn't have the time to do it anymore and now my my daughter in grade 12 brings her math problems i'm like wow i can't believe that i ever did this i have no idea what's going on here but you know for a while i was quite good at it um, but music was always a part of my life and even though i maybe didn't recognize it as my passion at the age of 18 it was just so much a part of me that it wasn't i didn't have to kind of pick it out and say this is what i want to do it's just what i had always had done it's quite inspiring also because music as you may have seen i mean you know this better than i do like in canada we don't necessarily really have that the same level of reverence i want to say for classical music as maybe europe does or asia does so for you picking this path was i would assume quite difficult because in canada there's not as much again as much reverence for it as a career path so I mean, I could assume maybe at the time some of your colleagues or maybe some friends may have been like, oh, is that necessarily the right path? But correct me if I'm wrong, though. I mean, I, I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong at this point because, you know, it would be really refreshing to know if whether if people back in your time were a lot more, you know, un understanding and a lot more, a lot more knowledgeable and treat music a lot, with right. a lot more respect than nowadays, at least. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think when you're playing the violin as a young kid, you're always hanging out with like-minded people, right? You're hanging out with people that also play the violin. 
and or play piano, whose, whose parents think it's important, that think it's, even if you're not going into it, that think it's a good education. My parents were always supportive of me going into music. They weren't supportive of me not having options, right? They loved the idea of me going to a university and being able to look at other things at the same time. And I liked university. I liked the idea of being able to learn different stuff and being able to leave music for a while and go do some math or some science courses or literature or whatever. Um, in Canada, we have less reverence than in Europe. I mean, it's a very different society. It's not something which is prevalent as part of society. You know, we haven't grown up in the town where Bach wrote his cantatas sort of thing. We don't have the history of that quite as much, and that's fine, right? We're, we're, we're coming from a different place. There's not as much history of classical music in Prince George, not because Prince George doesn't have a long history. It's just it doesn't have a long history of classical music. And so I think, in a way, it's kind of upon us to remind people that what we do isn't some separate thing which exists in this ivory tower and that it's actually something which is totally a part of their lives every single time you watch a show on netflix or a movie you're hearing a symphony orchestra people will say oh i love that soundtrack that was amazing oh i've never gone to the symphony what would that be like and i say well it's exactly the same right it's just music and there's a lot of people that like lots of different kinds of music and it's our job to kind of find that niche and to find the people that like what we do and hopefully introduce it to other people that just don't understand or who are, might be intimidated by the symphony. Um, and it, we're in a different kind of society, right? In Europe, there's been government funding for classical music for a long time. And in Canada, we've had that government funding and don't really have so much of it anymore, but we don't have that kind of long history of philanthropy as the US does because the US has not had government support for so many things, healthcare, the arts, that it's developed a culture of like, well, private enterprises or individuals need to take care of this. And Canada, we're kind of caught in between and it will find its balance at some point, but we're in the middle of a transition right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a good example in Europe is the International Chopin Competition, which is funded partially by the culture part of the ministry of the Polish government. And that, although that was a bit more recent, I, would, I should say, probably around the 2000s, um, despite the fact that the International Showback Competition has been around since the early 1900s. But it's that sort of, as you mentioned, that sort of cultural directness, that, that the cultural proximity that the European countries get to enjoy that emphasizes, oh, it's a part of their identity, not just musically, but also culturally and socially as well. In Canada, I think we're starting to build that in a, in, a, in a very unique way because much of our classical upbringings are quite modern, I want to say, at least from my own initial understanding, at least from, from the area that I'm part of. So I think I think things are changing for the better, though, at the, at the end of the day here in Canada. And History takes time, right? The Staatskapel Berlin was just here in Toronto doing a concert, and they're saying that this orchestra has existed for something like 400 years. Right. So it's existed like, you know, more than twice as long as Canada has even been a country. Right. So in a way, there's been time to develop that kind of like, oh, we, we like this as part of our culture. We respect this institution for the governments to get involved. Right. It's just like some things take time. And Canada as a country is still an incredibly young country. I mean, there have been a lot of people around doing great music before Canada existed. And this is something that we're dealing with now. How do we represent Indigenous music? in Canada as part of the kind of classical music field. And it's something that we're all kind of working towards to try to figure out right now. And it's it's kind of new for us. Right. And and as you said, it takes takes time to build something. And in your case, it took time for you to build up your career. 
but you had a quite a meteoric rise in your career already during McGill. So what were the greatest challenges that you faced in your transition into first year music at McGill? And what were the similarities and differences in your violin lessons pre-McGill versus during McGill? I would say the biggest difference um, was just, you know, all teachers are different. But when I was studying in Victoria, BC, where I lived for three years before going to university, um, I was studying with a wonderful old teacher named Sidney Humphreys, who had had a huge long career and had kind of retired to Victoria and was still doing some teaching at the time. And then when I got to McGill, I was studying with a professor named Jonathan Barrick, who I think was 25 at the time, and it was his first job, and he was a very, very young professor. So it was, it was a total change of energy going from somebody who'd been around and had done everything, had worked with everybody, had played with every orchestra, and knew everything about every concerto, but, you know, didn't have the 25-year-old's energy, moving on to this new kind of young, vibrant teacher who was like super intense about everything and had this kind of young energy about the way he worked, but hadn't necessarily done everything before and wasn't as experienced. Um, they were both amazing teachers, but kind of finding that change, that change was a little bit kind of different for me. I'm like, oh, this is a different way of working in my lessons. I need to kind of think differently about how I ask things and and what sort of stuff I'm going to get back. I wouldn't say it was a challenge, but it certainly was a, a new way of learning. Soon after graduating McGill, as I mentioned in the introduction, in 2002, you became concertmaster of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. Take us back to that time when you found out that you were be where that you were to be concertmaster. What was yeah. it like? What were you feeling? Um, I would say the, the bigger challenge is when I first joined the Montreal Symphony and uh, I was associate principal second violin and going from three years at McGill into a full time professional orchestra. That was a shock. I was in no way prepared for the job. I was in no way prepared for how fast I had to learn repertoire, how much everybody else would know every single piece they played. And it was all new for me. So those first couple of years were a little bit overwhelming. It was so much music, so many different conductors and soloists and so many things to deal with. That was kind of tough. Uh, when I stepped into the concertmaster chair, I'd been in the orchestra for, I guess, three or four years at that point. And I would say, actually, that was a really natural way of doing it. When I joined the orchestra as associate principal second violin, I was promoted to associate concertmaster um, within the first year and spent three years as associate concertmaster and then was promoted to concertmaster and it was a really natural way of doing it because I was stepping up to a leadership role in an orchestra where I already knew how things worked, but I hadn't had to lead from the beginning. I knew everybody in the orchestra. I'd gotten to know them and respect them, and hopefully they'd gotten to know me and respect me and were supportive of me stepping into the role. And it didn't feel I was like this kind of new kid coming out of nowhere that was trying to tell people who honestly had so much more knowledge than me, had been doing the job for 30 years, 40 years sometimes, and had played every piece many times while a lot of it was new for me. And that's a tough balance. When you come into a leadership role as a younger person in the arts, you have to respect that there is a lot of knowledge around you. There's a lot of experience and there's a lot of people who know what they're doing extremely well. So you have to balance the fact that, yeah, I'm the concert master and I am expected to choose the Boeings and that sort of thing against the fact that like there are people in the orchestra that have played these Boeings for 40 years before. They know what they are doing. They know how they work. And if I'm going to change it, there better be a really good reason. Right, right, right. And as you mentioned, that that sort of age difference is, I mean, I, 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 I can only imagine just how difficult it is, you know, as a young concertmaster to be able to lead, as you mentioned, people who are not only older than you, but 
have had so much experience with that because it's even that even ignoring the musicality and the the, the bowings for it for a moment even the age gap i would assume was probably something that you would, would have had to overcome because how do you get people to listen to you when you're so much younger than them when you could basically be yeah. basically some of their some of their nephews basically the at the, yeah, exactly. the list, right so yeah, yeah. i can't imagine right. that yeah and it's it's hard and it's i think it needs to come from a place of respect they want to know that the new concert master respects them as musicians respects the orchestra respects everything that they've done over the past many years um i always felt respected by them i always felt that they thought that i was in a good position and that they thought highly of me in my role um, and I think it has to go both ways. It can it can fall apart quite fast if they feel like I don't really trust what they've learned over the years of the job, or if I'm not willing to learn from the orchestra and grow myself. You know, as as a player, as a concertmaster, as a leader, you need to be able to go in and adapt to, to the situation that you're in, and not just try to change everybody to the way you play or the way you want to do something. That's not the job. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to go back a little bit further, back to the '90s. Because as it mentioned, as I mentioned in my introduction, you had also performed under the baton of many great conductors, including Yehudi Menuhin. What was it like to perform under him and to work with him? I mean, terrifying, nerve wracking. He's he's one of the gods of the violin of all time. And I remember I went to his dressing room. I was playing Tchaikovsky Concerto with the Victoria Symphony. He was doing a benefit concert for them and had asked for a young BC violinist. And I had a relationship with the orchestra at that point. So they luckily for me reached out to me and said, would you like to come and perform with Lord Yehudi Menu? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I think so. I remember going to his hotel and we played through the piece and we worked it through and he was kind of doing a little bit of conducting. I was playing and then he said, okay. Then he proceeded to give me a lesson on the piece and suggested things I could do differently and kind of change some stuff. It was amazing. At about halfway through, I was like, oh, wait, he wants me to change this for tomorrow when the concert is. And, and then I realized... Oh, he has no idea. He could do this. He could have changed and done anything. Like, you know, he was, he's a god in the violin. He didn't realize that I'm just a mortal trying to play the violin as best as I can. <laughs> like, there was no way I was playing Tchaikovsky Concerto and I was going to switch all of my bowings and fingerings on one day's notice. And it made me realize perhaps like the distinction between like, you know, true genius and somebody like that who's, who was truly a genius in the field and, you know, so much respect for everything that he did. And, he just wanted everybody to be like that. And in a way, it was something to aspire to, right? To like to try to achieve what he was able to do, to try to achieve the way he thought that he didn't see limitations, that he didn't feel like he should be bound by limitations or that I should. It was interesting for me. That's fascinating. But, yeah, an amazing experience. I mean, playing with one of the greatest violinists of all time, conducting just to my left, a little bit overwhelming and certainly a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. And it's like you mentioned it that stroke of true genius is something that even in the world of piano i i see that even with people like martha argerich or 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 dan tyson who have had so much experience with the pieces in their case chopin that they can they can see a particular part a particular phrase a particular particular bar a particular set of bars and they would easily say, oh, we can do it like this, da 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 Whereas for many people, 
even those who are you know really really high caliber people it's almost it, it still takes them a while to get to that to you know notice it and try to for as you mentioned it feels like there's like a, a limitation but it's kind of like a self-imposed limitation so to speak but it's it's sort of like people like martha argrich or or dan tyson or any of the like the great titans of a piano it's it's like they're limitless they have no no qualms of you know pushing the boundaries and they just they innovate in a way that is so so different but also so respectful and so fascinating at the same time and that's as you mentioned like the stroke of true genius it's really really interesting and it's really rare to to, to see these these types of people and these types of musicians you know in really any lifetime yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of ways of getting to any result, right? I mean, there's many great musicians that would never get up on stage without having practiced something and do it the same way every time. And then, of course, you hear the stories about Argrich or Daniel Barenboim. You know, they'd get a, a new cadenza to a, a concerto they're playing the next night on the plane. And be like, oh, I'll take a look at that in the plane. They'd kind of look it through and think, oh, this is nice. And then they'd perform it the next day, having never touched it before and it's kind of basically memorized by looking at it right so just the idea that you can be so technically in control of what you're doing with your body that you can rely on just being able to do it first time without having done it before because you know you're going to be able to right to have that confidence which is backed up by years of great playing to have the confidence that like okay i could take a piece of music and i could read it through and look at it for half an hour and then perform it the next day without ever touching it that's an amazing thing and it's like you say, to feel like there are no limits like that, it's kind of incredible. The danger is, you know, it doesn't always go that well for people that aren't Martha Argrich or Daniel Barenboim. If I tried to do that, I don't think anybody would be paying money for that concert ever again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it, yeah, be beautifully said. It's it's really fascinating to see, to, to see that level of talent and experience. But going back to you, though, what's also fascinating is that after serving with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, you would move over to Toronto about five years later. What inspired the move from Montreal to Toronto? Um, well, the music director of the Toronto Symphony at the time is a, a man named Peter Ungin. And Peter was somebody that I'd worked with at the Ravinia Festival many years back when I was 18 and studied with him a little bit. Um, a great inspiration, former violinist from the Tokyo String Quartet and had gone into conducting because of a, a hand injury. And so he called me maybe three years before I came to Toronto and said, would you consider trying out for a concertmaster here? And at that point, I just made the move from the Montreal Symphony to teach at McGill. I had very young children and the idea of kind of uprooting and making a move was just not in the cards. And so I remember I was sitting at the kitchen table and he called me about three years later and said, why don't you just come and play with the orchestra and see what it's like? And I'm like, OK, and, you know, I, I really like Peter. I love working with him. And at that point, I came and I played with the orchestra. It's a great orchestra. You know, I had a bunch of friends in the orchestra already. I really liked the city. And for some reason at that point, it just felt like a really great time for a move. My kids were just going into kindergarten sort of thing. So it's not like I'd be uprooting them from friends that they'd had for years. And it seemed like a nice family fit. And I just, I love the orchestra. That's great. So what are the responsibilities of a concertmaster? And I, I, I understand that that from an early interview that you did, I forgot where it was, but you mentioned that most concertmasters have their own different answers to the question. But in your case, what do you think are the responsibilities of your role as concertmaster? Yeah, it's probably the question I get the most. And every time I have to think about it, it's like, uh, what, what should I explain that I do? And actually, Peter put it once 
very well. Like, you know, there's the, there's the coach of the hockey team and that's kind of the conductor. And then there's the captain and the captain in a way will be the bridge between the coach and other players if necessary. Right. A lot of what I do as a concert master will be followed by like the, if necessary comment sort of thing. Right. So if there's the conductor on stage or a, a conductor that perhaps isn't a string player, the string player might ask from the string session, okay, I need a sound which is more fluffy. I need it to be more ethereal or something like that. And if they're not a string player, they might not necessarily know how to achieve it. They just want us to figure it out. And sometimes it's my role to translate that and be like, okay, we need to be in this part of the bow and play with less weight or something like that. Um, I might be a bridge from the orchestra to the audience, right? When I walk on at the beginning of the concert, I'm the one who bows. And that doesn't mean that I'm so important that I get a solo bow. It's more that the concert master represents the orchestra and takes the bow for the orchestra. Um, I'm responsible for the string sections sounding good in a way. And so that there's many different things that you can do, but I need to work out bowings for the violin so that we're all moving the same way so that we can sound the same way. If there's a detail of ensemble between the string sections, it's my job to kind of like talk to my colleagues, my the other principals, and kind of figure out a way that we can be together and make a decision, you know, communally, but make a decision about how we're going to do something in a certain amount of time. Rehearsals happen very quickly, right? So a lot of things have to be decided in the moment. Um, I might be a bridge between the orchestra and the board or donors, for example, like if there's a, a large, important event or something, I'm often the person who's asked to perform at that and in a way to represent the orchestra. Um, and I guess I'm saying represent a lot, right? The concertmaster in a way is a representative of the orchestra to different people, to a visiting conductor, to the to the main conductor, to the audience, to the board, to donors, and, you know, to kind of all of our constituents in a certain way. Right, right. You're also an artistic director of a music festival, the Toronto Summer Music Festival. And in that capacity, what are your roles and responsibilities and how do you curate talent for a music festival? I would say it's actually an easier question to answer because there's more kind of like specific details. So, you know, when I curate a festival, I need to find people to perform every concert. I need to put together the set of concerts and I need to hire those people that I might know or that I know of and put them together into groups or to hire visiting ensembles to perform at these concerts. Um, how you curate talent, that's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of people, I mean, sometimes you take a risk. Sometimes you see a young musician and you think this person is going to be a star and I believe in them. And then as an artistic director, I think it's our role to kind of support the growth of young talent, to help people that are trying to make their way in the music world, um, get that foothold to get kind of a start in the field and get concerts and chances to perform and get introduced to audiences because audiences love to hear great musicians. And I'm in the field, so I kind of know of most of the up and coming people around It's my role and my job to kind of help present them to audiences that I know that are going to really like them. We also have a training program. So it's my job to audition the young emerging artists that come, you know, to audition them, to listen to the tapes, to decide who's going to be a good fit for the program, um, get them set so they can come to Toronto for the four weeks. Um, it's fundraising as part of it, meeting with people to get money. I mean, it's a crass thing to say, right? But none of this happens unless people are generous and are willing to support something. So it's convincing people that their money is not going to get wasted, but also that what we do is valuable that if we have an education program, that what we do is a valuable form of education and that it's worth supporting. Speaking about education, you're also a professor of violin at the University of Toronto. So 
what are the similarities and differences between preparing for a violinist for competitions and preparing them for non-competitive performances? Non-competitive in a way that they will never be doing competitive performances or non-competitive in that they're not at that point yet. I guess both. I guess both. From like, from like, as whatever your experiences are in those areas from both both ends. So, I mean, if you're teaching young kids that at least when I'm teaching young kids, sometimes you don't know yet if they're going to go into music, right? If you have a 12 year old, it might be a fine violinist, very talented person, but they don't know if they're going to be a musician. And in a way they shouldn't have decided yet at the age of 12, if you don't have some options in what you're going to want to do, it's like, wow, have you set your whole life already? But I think as a teacher, part of your job is to keep those options open. So if I'm working with a 12-year-old, even if I don't know that they're going to be the next superstar Yehudi Menuhin, my job is to still to train them in the way that when they go to make that choice, I haven't closed a door for them, right? So if there's major technical things that might get in the way down the road, I kind of feel like I need to address them, even if I don't know if down the road the person's going to be playing the violin anymore. That's not the point. If I don't address them, they might not be able to play them. When you're looking at a 12-year-old or even a university student at 18, you're looking more long-term. So you might be choosing repertoire, which is good for them to develop their skills that they need to play to develop as a musician to get better and to improve. That's not always the same repertoire or the same way of working to sound good tomorrow or the next week, right? When you're trained, when you're preparing somebody for a competition, in theory, they've done that work. They have established like a technical base and that they can play the way they want to, and that they have the repertoire built up that they're ready to make a career should they do well in the competition that starts. And when you're choosing the competition repertoire and the preparation, your job is to get them to sound really great in that competition and to do extremely well with the idea that the prep work before of getting them ready for a career or developing their skills has already taken place. If it hasn't taken place, you probably shouldn't be doing that competition because if you happen to win, it's not even going to be a good thing because you won't be able to sustain the career. So you have to make sure that you plan very well when you're training somebody to perform well on that one day. You also have to keep in mind they need to have done the work that they can play well for the next 10 years should they get all the concerts that they hope are coming their way. So, it's you know, it's kind of a different idea of term and how short term and how long term you might be looking when you're doing the training. Right, right. And is there a difference between preparing for a national competition like the CMC or the Canadian Music Competition and an international competition such as the Manuin competition? Or are they pretty much one and the same in terms of strategies for preparation? Well, I think the strategies are more or less the same. It depends what age you're looking at, right? When you're preparing, even Manuin competition, which is a major international competition, but it's a competition for young musicians. It's not a competition in theory for win this and you will have your career started. It's not like Queen Elizabeth or Indianapolis, where it's the idea if you win one of those, they're looking for somebody that can step in to a soloist position and just be on the road and kind of like start the career immediately. They're not necessarily looking quite as much for potential, although the idea of somebody winning and developing into an even greater player is very important, right? So if you choose between the 18-year-old who sounds amazing in the moment or the 27-year-old who sounds amazing in the moment, you might be looking like, well, the 18-year-old has potential to do even more. When you're doing a national competition or for younger artists, you're maybe looking more for what the person might sound like five years down the road or 10 years down the road and what they might develop into, right? So if there's a competition where you have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old and you think one of them has the potential to be a star and the other one sounds good in the moment but you don't think has the musical chops to develop into as much, you might 
choose that the one that has more potential wins. And this is a really hard thing to do. It's perhaps easy for an adjudicator to say, in this moment, this person played better. I don't know how easy that is, really, but you can at least justify it. But looking at potential is harder, like to predict how people will end up further down the road. It's like, well, who knows? Who yeah. knows? You know, hopefully they're going to practice a lot and get the right inspiration and the right instruction, but that's, that's totally out of control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're predicting potential, you're essentially performing some kind of foresight or some kind of prediction, which is, it's really difficult, like, as you said, so. And then when you look at competitions, they often get it wrong, right? So many times the first place winner in a competition doesn't really make it that far and they disappear and the second or third place might do better. You just, you never know. You, you pick what you can and life changes people, right? People have different ideas what they want to do in life. Sometimes people get the career after winning a competition and realize like, oh, this isn't for me. I didn't want to be on the road. 364 days a year sort of thing so this you know it's it's the business of prediction but you know it's like the hockey draft or something right you do your best to see who's going to turn out to be a star and you don't always get it right exactly exactly so on an earlier episode of this is legend of on episode three i featured kirsten Leung, who is my maternal cousin and who you know as one of your students that you taught for a few years as well. And in 2021, in the Toronto Star, you described him as, quote, not just one of Canada's greatest violinists, but one of the greatest violinists, period, end quote. And having taught Kirsten, what was it like to teach him? That's a good question. I guess I taught Kirsten from maybe the ages of kind of 12 to 18 or so, when he was at the end of high school and before he went off to to belgium to study further um kirsten was interesting because he came and you know all of the technical things he could already operate the instrument flawlessly it was amazing he could already do the things that you needed to do but as in anything else he was kind of figuring out his own voice he was figuring out what he wanted to sound like and what sort of pieces did he want to play what did he want to put into his music right and so with him, it was really kind of a voyage of discovery. He would come in every single week and be like, well, I've tried this and it seems to work pretty well, but I'm going to try this next week. And, you know, he's incredibly curious. And that's that's what I love the most about working with him is that he was incredibly curious about everything. Technically, musically, he was always looking at new um, YouTube videos of people that he heard about and wanted to kind of like not copy, but be inspired by. He was always looking for new techniques. Um, the reason I said he's one of the great violinists is because he's unique and i think that's something that in this world is not as common as it used to be in music right there's not as many people that you turn on the radio and you can be like oh that's ifits or oh that's menuhin but with kirsten i could turn on the radio and be like oh yeah that's kirsten playing he said it's recognizable he's found a style a way of playing that's really heartfelt but also is unique to him and nobody else sounds like him and nobody else makes the same choices. And I really respect that, right? It was something that was really interesting to work with him on because I'd make a suggestion, we try things a different way, but then I'd always be excited like, well, what's he gonna come back with next week? Cause he's gonna have put this into his own and he's kind of like, in a way, put it into, into his own words, but his into his own voice. And what was gonna come out was not gonna be what I told him to do, but it was gonna be this kind of like mishmash of ideas where he'd, you know, sifted through everything and come up with what was really personal to him. And I think that's something that's important in music, that it is personal. At the end of the day, as a violinist, my job is to interpret music by great composers. I want to play the music, but it's also my job to put a little bit of myself into it 
Otherwise, chat GPT can do it and we can all just listen to robots, right? Which I don't think that's going to be the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I noticed it too when I heard Kirsten even playing, like even comparing his performances to even some of other people's performances. As you mentioned, it's that distinction, it's that uniqueness that I also hear as well in his playing. Um, and, you know, also myself, you know, being being related, we sometimes we also hang out. Uh, when we were younger, we used to hang out uh, quite a bit. And hearing him practice and hearing him approach pieces in a different way, even even at that age, 13, 14, it was, it's, it was very, very fascinating and also a joy to listen to as well because yeah. it's always something new, but it's something respectful, but something so, so new and innovative. It's also like, wow, this is, I, I did not think that you could actually do it that way and make it work so well at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's important when you're teaching that age too, there, there's this kind of temptation to be like, this, this is the correct way to play something, or this is the way you're supposed to play Bach. The historians have discovered that you rolled the chords above, blah, blah, blah. All this sort of way of looking at music, like it's something with which is black and white, you're either doing it right or you're wrong. And I think it's really important that when you're teaching kids that age, that you can kind of guide them in, you know, kind of constructs and like there's certain kind of like, not rules, but kind of concepts of the way we play certain styles, but without taking away the ability for somebody to discover something new and to be surprised like, wow, I'd never thought of it that way, but it's brilliant. Um, and I think that is maybe something which is getting lost in training and that too many people are just like, you play Mozart like this, you do that, 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 that. That, 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 and the people copy it, but then they forget like, well, you're actually supposed to be thinking about things yourself. You're supposed to be looking to go further, right? I don't think there's many composers back in the day who would have been upset if you're like, I've thought of a new and beautiful way to transcend the limitations of my instrument so that I can do more like what line you're looking for. I think, I think they'd be like, sure, that's great. You know, Beethoven, if, I, if you heard Hammerclavier in a nine foot Steinway right now, I think he'd be like thrilled. He'd be like, this is amazing. It's even louder and more awesome than I ever could have thought of on my own forte piano, go for it. Right, right, exactly. And that brings us towards the topic of musicality itself. And it's the age-old question that is so, it's at first an easy thing to to look at, but when when one goes deeper into it, it's quite difficult. And it's really the question of what is musicality? So what is musicality to you? It's when somebody's speaking to me, like, you know, if somebody is on stage, they have something to say. If they don't have something to say, they shouldn't be on stage. And if you don't think you have something to say, then you definitely shouldn't be on stage. But if somebody gets up on stage and they're performing, I want to see what they have to say with it. I don't have to agree with it. I can even vehemently dislike what they're, what they're saying, right? But the idea that you're getting something that's a personal connection from the person on stage, I think is really important. And I would much rather leave a concert being like, wow, I at every moment of that it was i really disliked their interpretation but i was into it then kind of be bored and be like man they didn't have anything to say right communication this is what we all learned during covid right what we missed was communication what i missed was being on stage and being able to communicate with an audience but also to get the communication back from an audience and that was really hard to achieve you know when i was playing for a screen like this and i had no idea what people were thinking it was easy to lose that kind of personal connection with every member of the audience and the people that you're trying to reach and i think musicality is just that it's this way that you are communicating something of yourself with other people that we feel connected right and how do you develop your own musical style 
Oh, that's a really uh, deep, intense question. Um, how do you develop your own musical style? I mean, we all have we all have a history, right? We all come from different training. We all come from different backgrounds. We're inspired by everything that we've ever heard. We were inspired by every recording we've ever heard, every teacher that's ever ever said something, right? And then we all, in a way, try to put that together and make our own decisions of what we want to do and and make a kind of choice that finds its direction between all the information that we've gotten. But I think we, we're always getting information about music and what we want to do from teachers, from colleagues, from being an orchestra, from hearing other people. And at some level, we kind of put that together into something which is hopefully our own. And in developing that specific style and from taking all these different influences from other people, there's still, of course, the issue of practicing as well. For you... You have to be able to do what you want at the end of the day. If you can't, if you hear something, but you can't actually do it on the violin, you're not, you're not doing all that much, right? You're not making a connection with the audience if you just can't technically achieve what you hear. Exactly, exactly. So how do you nail both the quality and quantity of practice? Uh, ask me in 25 years, <laughs> maybe I'll figure it out. Um, I think that's a constant balance and like everything in life is balanced. Like there was a time when I had very young children that I wasn't practicing very much. You know, I didn't have time and I was too tired. I think the quality of my practice probably went up because I would often be like, okay, my child will nap for exactly 43 minutes. And that means I have 42 minutes to get all my practice of the day done. And if I have to cover this, 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 that means I need to start here and I do that. And it's just like, I was so incredibly efficient. Um, so I think quality in a way is probably more important than quantity because if you're practicing something the correct way it will hopefully stick whereas if you're practicing it badly for a long period of time all you're training yourself is how to play badly right you can practice for five hours and you're playing everything terribly and just kind of running things through at the end of the day you've probably gotten worse but how you nail that balance i think that's a constant struggle and it's something i talk about with my students all the time how do you find that balance we all learn very differently. So we all have different things that we need to do. We all have different amounts of time that we need to spend on figured octaves as opposed to just sitting with the music and thinking about a piece. And, you know, I think it's important that we all consider even before practicing, what is it that I need to get better at? What is it that I want to sound better at? How do I want to play at the end of this practice session? Where am I trying to get with this rather than sitting down blindly and just kind of playing through scales or pieces or whatever. We don't think perhaps about practicing maybe as much as we could. Right, right. And I, I would also imagine that f- in your case, having to travel and to to perform worldwide, that also has an effect on your opportunities to practice as well, because you got to deal with jet lag, you got to deal with all these different things, the, the, the struggles of traveling. And then on top of that, you have to practice. I, I would assume that would also have had also so much, somewhat of an effect on the opportunities to practice while I'm there. Yeah, for sure. And you you can plan all you want, but then your flight's delayed by 10 hours and you get to your hotel at 11 o'clock at night and you're like, I was supposed to have four hours of practice this afternoon. It didn't happen. I mean, I practiced in airports before because it was just the only place that I could find to do it. So I kind of find a quiet space, put a mute on and kind of like sheepishly to start playing my violin and invariably a, a crowd would gather or something. And then in a way it became a great performance practice opportunity because i'd be practicing it's like well now all these people are watching and i'm a little bit nervous and it was great preparation for the concert because it's like okay i need to make sure i'm doing everything right 
Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, life, life gets in the way of everything, right? You can plan exactly how you're going to practice and, oh, my arm is a little bit sore today. I better not hurt myself and things will get in the way or kid wakes up from a nap or, you know, somebody breaks an arm and you have to take them to the emergency room. Like this is what all fields deal with this kind of life work art balance sort of thing. And it's not just musicians. Um, and I think accepting that there, there's no, you never achieve the goal, right? It's not like you wake up one day and you're like, Hey, I've balanced everything perfectly. I practice exactly the right way. I'm doing the right amount of work. I'm doing the right amount of play. And it just, it doesn't work that way. And we're constantly striving for work-life balance. And, you know, if we get a little bit closer each day, that's a success. And it's the same thing in the practice room, getting better at your instrument. You're constantly striving for that balance between the art and the fundamentals and the technique. And, you know, if every day you get a little bit closer, you can do one more thing that you heard in your head but couldn't achieve before, then that's a success. Certainly, certainly. So when you're looking at a piece of music, and this might be a little bit difficult to answer without an actual concrete example, but when you look at a specific piece of music, how do you determine the proper way of approaching a specific set of musical phrases and how do you determine the best way to make these the melody the harmony the counter melody the counterpoint how do you make all this make sense and sound beautiful to both the trained ear and the untrained ear mm -hmm. i i think you know the, the untrained ear the trained ear it doesn't really matter i mean it needs to sound beautiful to everybody it, it's like there's no you shouldn't be playing classical music only for people that know about classical music. And there shouldn't be an idea like, oh, people need to understand this for dozens of years before they can like it. Right. If I play a piece of music and people don't get it and they don't understand somehow I haven't done my job. Right. And so I can work better at it next time and like try to find a way that I make people understand. It. And this is what people want when they listen to classical music. Right. They want to understand it. They don't want to hear a Bach fugue and be like confused. I don't get it. What was going on? They want to hear a Bach fugue and be like, oh my gosh, I could hear different voices going on at different times. It made so much sense. How you get there is interesting. Um, with a new piece of music, it's probably different than something which is written a long time ago. There's not many old pieces of music that I haven't somehow heard or heard of or can't find on YouTube and have heard at some point in my life that I kind of know a little bit about what's going on. With premieres, obviously, you get the score for the first time. You need to know what's going on. So when I approach it, I like to get it to a level that I can kind of play everything to a certain point enough to start kind of considering what my options are, right? I don't, I don't generally look down at a score and make all my decisions and then they're set in stone. I like to get to the, the point where I can kind of play the piece and I can kind of start fooling around with it, maybe experimenting, seeing what might work, going back to the score, looking at like what else is going on at the same time. But I need to be, for me, I need to be able to operate my instrument enough to kind of get through the piece a little bit that I can start putting things together. And then at that point, I can start to make musical decisions about, you know what, I see how this is working and I can decide what I'm trying to do with a phrase or something. But at least for me, I need to be able to do it on my instrument first. So I, I probably wouldn't be a good conductor, you know, because conductors can't do that. They need to be able to sit down at the score and get the idea of what they want to do because they might only have one rehearsal with the orchestra, which is their instrument. And they have to know what they want immediately from looking at the score. I like to be able to experiment a little bit uh, with my violin a little bit more. Right, right, right. Same same here, honestly, for me in, in piano. I, that's something that I always like to do whenever I'm trying out a new piece. Uh, for me, recently, I've been getting into more like Nikolai Kapustin's pieces. Uh, mm -hmm. He's more of like a classical slash jazz kind of kind of yeah. combination. 
but it's 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 interesting because when I was experimenting with his pieces, oddly enough, Oscar Peterson came to mind for me because for him, when he was still alive and still teaching, he would actually uh, encourage his students to practice Bach because a lot of the of the of the melisma and a lot of the running notes that is actually quite transferable into jazz music and in, in this case for Capuchin there were a lot of these different running running passages so right. for me I was like I was really digging deep into the Bach parts of my of my of my past and and again experimenting with Capuchin in that way and for me I found that that was something that I learned best from not just Capuchin but from most composers as well so for me I'm I, I think I'm a, I'm a similar style to that as well yeah and when you think about the idea of you say experiment a lot which makes sense and when you think experiment you can go to the point of like improvisation, right? Because improvisation is basically experimenting with something in the moment. And so when you look at Bach and jazz, right, there's a lot of improv. Bach it just happens to be improv that he has written out for you with the idea of a lot of these ornaments. They're not something which is like it's set in stone. You have to play these 30 seconds. They're supposed to sound like you're improvising something around a framework, right? And so Kapustin, as complicated and as intense as it is, right, there's still there's a framework and then there's an idea of experimentation and improv around that and i think that's a great way of looking at it yeah the way how i look at music personally is that it's not it's not a rock it's like a rubber band like there's yeah. still the general structure of the rubber band is still circular but you can pull it you can stretch it you can do whatever ways but it still keeps that structure but you can be a lot flexible and creative with how you can manipulate the rubber band and for me at, at least the end that's of the day you are the one interpreting it right so it's not like bach does not exist in a vacuum it's not like visual art like there's a rembrandt we can go to the museum and we can see it and we can all make our own decisions about what it means to us we don't need somebody to interpret it for us but music is a weird thing right because you have a composer who writes a piece of music and then you need either them to play it or you need somebody else to play it so there's always a second step there's the piece of music by itself and then there's the person who's interpreting it for you and those things kind of blend together and that's why it's kind of interesting right it's almost like if you see rembrandt in a different lighting it'll look different every time so imagine you could go to a museum and every single time you saw this piece of art there was a slightly different kind of like lighting on it or it was a different time of day or there was something different about it so you got a different feeling from it and music is like that every single time you hear the exact same piece there's always different circumstances it's not going to be the same yeah and even the same performer playing the same piece is also going to sound different yeah. as well i mean yeah I mean, a good example is is, is when Kirsten performed uh, Zagunavizen at the Menuhin competition finals versus him performing again in 2021. There, yeah. There's a substantial difference, right? He sounds a lot more mature because he's grown up, but he also approaches it a lot differently from how he did back when he was a 13-year-old in the competition. Yeah. And even the co it's competition versus non-competition as well. That's There's also a difference in that part as well. So Right? Yeah, he's not trying to impress judges. He's just playing for an audience. And he had a different violin, right? So there's another variable, a different violin that inspires different sounds, and you have a different way of thinking when you're playing a different instrument. Right, exactly. Speaking about violins, what's the difference between... This is like, even... I'm just curious on this point. Like, what's the difference between, like, a Strad versus a Del Jesu, like, in terms of sound, in terms of sound box, and sound of, in terms of color, tone color? Like, what's the difference between these two, and how do they, how, how are they different, or why are they perceived as better than, you know, a, a violin maker that isn't as well-known or as revered as a Strad or a Del Jesu? Yeah. 
So Strad and Del Jesu were working at, at kind of similar times in Cremona. Um, and Strad was the winner. He Everybody wanted Strads back when he was making them. Um, Guarneri could barely make make a living out of it. Like he had to do other odd jobs and he didn't make nearly as many instruments probably because he didn't have as much time. And so Strad is, is thought of as the greatest, the greatest technical maker of all time and also the greatest sound. But like when you look at his instruments, they are perfect. Every single thing about them is perfect. The way they're carved, they're works of art to look at. Um, Guarneri's are rough. And you look at the scroll, it looks like it's kind of been hacked out. He didn't have time to perfect everything. He had to make money. Um, and in a way, I, I don't think it has anything to do with what they look like, how they sound. But in a way, this comes out in the sound too. Strads are perfect. The way they make their sound, it's perfect. It's refined. Everything about it is crystalline. They're beautiful. They're lovely. They're singing. Del Jesus have a rough edge to them. But in a way, they can be a bit more raw. They can be a bit more kind of like primal and they're darker generally in their sound um the low end tends to be kind of richer and almost almost unrefined in a good way like very earthy and so i think it depends what you're looking for if you're looking for classical music and this kind of concept of classical music as the perfect elegance and refinement and everything about it is lovely and Viennese waltzes and all that you're probably looking for a strad if you're looking for something which is a little bit more raw wild in its sound you know it might almost be ugly at times but something which kind of maybe grips you in a deeper way you might be looking for a del jesu having said that the great strads and great del jesu sound amazing i mean they're all fantastic what makes them better than other instruments um there's more range so you can play louder on them and you can project your ideas to an audience more easily because you're not worried about just playing loudly all the time you know that you can project out so it means that you can actually play softer means that you can bring it down and know that your sound is going to reach the back of the hall which gives you more range as an interpreter and i would say there's just it's like the palette on these instruments is just bigger than other ones like you can imagine like you know a, lots of great instruments there's eight colors and then a strata del, del jesu there'll be like 36 different colors that you can mix and match there's just more options for the sounds that you can that you can get out of these instruments right right and i i'm i'm very fascinated by how you mentioned how a Del Jesu sounds almost wild and primal in a sense, because looking back to my conversation with Kirsten, when he described how he approached musicality and how and what musicality is to him, he also used the words something primal, like something very, very deep and primal. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated because I'm, I'm starting to wonder if the Del Jesu may have had some, some, some influence on his musicality on his on his philosophy and musicality because of just how similar it is in terms of like the primal and the wild that sort of thing you know it, it's fascinating because i don't know if maybe if it's, it's like a chicken and egg situation where the violin can in also influence the violinist or vice versa in terms of musicality it's a great question i guarantee you that kirsten will sound like kirsten on any instrument he's playing Right. I could take one from my closet here that hasn't been played for 25 years. I could give it to him and you'd be like, yep, still sounds like Kirsten. Right. He just he has this ability to make it sound like him no matter what he's playing. And I think when he finds that instruments that just kind of like amplifies his own voice, that's when he's the most happy. And he the Del suit that he has now, I think, is the closest to amplifying his own voice. Um, but I think he sounded and he was looking for that sound before he ever had a Del suit. Like at the age of 13, he was still, you could tell, searching for this sound something which is that kind of 
primal quality and everything. So yeah, I'm sure he's influenced and inspired by the sound that comes out, but he was looking for that long before he ever came across these great instruments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was already talking about the, uh, Garneri, Garneri del Jesu, even back when he, just after he won the Menuhin competition back in 2010. So, I mean, I've been hearing about this for many, many years. So, yeah. And he's gone, he's gone through a couple of different ones since then. Like he had one that was on loan, which you, which I really liked. And then he got a different one, which he liked better and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just, and everything's very personal, right? There's instruments that some musicians love that other ones just can't stand. It's, it's all what we're used to playing, what makes comfortable the sound that we're looking for and finding that that fit i think is the important thing yeah exactly exactly and speaking about fit along with being a strong musician on your own working with an orchestra also requires you to work with the other musicians as we've stated earlier on in this podcast episode to your process of preparing with them What's your process of coordinating the best possible strategy with like a concerto or or a symphony with the rest of the orchestra? Like how do you coordinate that strategy? Um it's it's different for every piece that you're playing, right? So you say a concerto and that that might be a a huge concerto with a massive wind section or it might be Vivaldi's Four Seasons with no conductor, right? And so those are very very different ways of playing if you're doing Vivaldi's Four Seasons with no conductor you can treat it much more like chamber music that you can kind of get involved in little details and like just work out things and, and trust that people are going to be able to follow you in the moment because there's just not that many people on stage. They're not as far apart. So there's not that lag of having somebody 50 feet behind you. You're playing Bartok concerto with, you know, three trombones or whatever. You can't have that same flexibility because there's just an inherent limitation to flexibility. Once you get into larger ensembles, which is why orchestras went from having no conductor to having conductors for Strauss and Wagner, because you know there's you need somebody to kind of guide traffic when you're playing with 96 people on stage. You perhaps don't need that when you're playing with 12. Now, I think the ideas of chamber music always apply in orchestra, right? The best conductors come in and they, they wanna kind of give us ideas, but often what they wanna do is encourage us to be listening to one another, encourage us to be listening and adjusting to one another and being inspired. So we're not just kind of blindly following the stick, but that there's a there's information coming from the stick to inspire the way we do something, but then we're all listening around one another to try and adjust and then be together and to find the best way to be as a unit following the conductor. Um, so there's different level of expectations. I don't think there's different level of preparation because you're always preparing to go in to know the piece as well as you can, to know all the other parts as well as you can, but you do have more, more limits. If it's again, four seasons, there's only four other parts or five other parts other than the solo violin. In a Mahler symphony, there might be like, you know, 96 different, different parts going on all at the same time. There's no way you can possibly know them all or hear them if you're playing violin. So then you have to rely on picking out of the ensemble what you want to hear and not worrying about the rest so much you rely on the conductor to deal with that overall balance that sort of thing right 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 and to what extent do you use the composer's written philosophy in your performance and to what extent do you incorporate your musical philosophy in such a performance like where do you find the balance between respecting the composer's original intentions while giving your own spin or your own style in that specific performance or that piece? I think it depends on the composer because some composers write in different ways, of course. And I remember two kind of modern composers that 
worked with recently, George Benjamin, who we did his opera written on skin with the Toronto Symphony, and Gary Kulesha, who's been the composer advisor to the Toronto Symphony for years. So Gary Kulesha came into a rehearsal of my string quartet playing his first string quartet. And, you know, we wanted to get some kind of feedback from him. And so we played it. We'd rehearsed quite a lot. We, were, we wanted to sound good for him and have him be happy with us. And, and he really didn't say anything. And we said, but what do you want us to do differently? He's like, that's not the point. The point is you guys are interpreting my piece. And as a composer, that's what I want. I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to write a piece of music and then hear interpretations because that's what makes music interesting. So he did not, he specifically did not want to tell us how to do things. He's like, I, my job is to write a piece of music and give you options and to give you leeway to interpret. As long as you are putting something of yourself into it, I'm happy. And George Benjamin, when we were doing Written on Skin, he specifically said, please do not interpret. It's not that I don't want you to be musical. It's just that I have written into the music what I want. It's there. And if you start doing other things, it's actually going to interfere with somebody else in a different voice. It's very complicated music. And I need you to just respect what's on the page. And really, that's all. So it's it's two like totally diametrically opposed viewpoints on the way you should look at music. And I think you need to consider context right when mozart wrote his violin concertos when he's 18 years old i don't think he was pouring over the score on the minutiae of like should the mezzo forte be here or should it be two notes later i think he wrote them he's like cool i wrote a violin concerto now i'm moving on to something else right whereas sibelius concerto you know sibelius was a violinist who desperately wanted to play his own concerto and they wouldn't let him and then the premiere went terribly and so he pulled the piece back and heavily revised it and you can imagine him feverishly in his cabin writing what he wants to be the greatest violin concerto that he wanted to play. And it was what his life stream to become a violinist and he couldn't do it. You can imagine that the detail probably needs more respect in that case. Right. So I think there's context behind how important the urtext is and how much a composer would expect you to interpret. And right. I think we all have to kind of think about that and make that choice, you know, hopefully trying to respect the composer's wishes by studying a little bit and learning about it. But at the end of the day, we all have to make that choice about how much do I just try to do what the composer has said and how much do I put my own personal stamp on it. Right, right, right. And with all of this being put together and with so many things that have happened over this time with all these factors of, of, of practicing, of performance, of incorporating, as you mentioned, the composer's philosophy, while also offering your own interpretation, your own spin on things. There were a lot of misconceptions that many people, that the general public may have about violin, about classical music as a whole, and about performance as a whole. In your personal experience, what were the greatest misconceptions that you personally saw? I would say it's going back to a little bit earlier in the conversation about what classical music is. People hear, oh, you're a classical musician. You play with the symphony. I don't even know what that is, and I couldn't possibly like it. But wow, I love Jurassic Park. The soundtrack to that is amazing. And then I'm like, but that's just symphony music. John Williams is one of the greatest composers of all time. He's not one of the greatest film composers of all time. He's just one of the greatest composers, right? People just don't understand that classical music is actually a part of their daily lives. They just don't kind of notice it or they don't pay attention to it. Like everybody has heard Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and almost everybody loves Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But if you ask them to go to the symphony, do you want to go see Beethoven's Five? They're like, oh, I, I'm not sure I'd go to the symphony. Do I have to wear a tux? <laughs> right? And that, that's 
you know, there's kind of a problem that classical music has not dealt with is that we've kind of expected people to like what we do. And it's like, it's almost like it's on them to learn to like classical music because we're so amazing, which is a, a really kind of silly way of looking at like what inherently is your livelihood just to expect people to like it because they should and expect people to expect the government to give you money just because they should instead of making it worthwhile for people to come like making sure that they understand that they're going to enjoy it but also making sure that they enjoy it making sure you have a concert which people will be excited about if you expect governments to give you money you have to be relevant and useful to society somehow so if we're just only programming concerts that only rich people can attend and it's very expensive why would the government ever want to give us money we have to make it worthwhile that there's education that we give back to the community that we find ways to help people that can't afford to come to the symphony and all this right but there's just so many misconceptions about what it actually is that we need to do a better job of combating right yeah and and some of these issues are also things that also my mom has also uh, run into as well as a piano teacher and something that I've, I've also run into as well back in the old days when I was still performing it's the lack of knowledge and and also the misconception that we are this really snobby, you know, yeah. out of touch with reality sort of thing. As you've probably heard, Two Set Violin, a very, very well-known YouTube channel, they've been breaking those yeah. those stereotypes and they've been, you know, they've been democratizing music in a way that is very relatable to a lot of people. And it's actually quite important that we have people like that doing it because it gives, it gives younger people, especially, especially kids, because... You know, kids, especially in Canada, at that age, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, classical music. Oh, it sounds like, oh, I want to go to sleep, that kind of kind of thing. And I got yeah, all totally those right. comments all the time. I was bullied as a kid, actually, because I was uh, I was a pianist, so I was bullied for for being passionate about classical music too. But yeah. you know, when you're able to make it sound cool without losing its own identity, it's like, oh, it's actually fascinating. People actually understand it, and people want to learn more about it, and. What also, and a lot of people don't realize, is that even some of the great composers that they listen to, like like you mentioned, John Williams, you know, they're also influenced a lot by a lot of these composers as well. I think John Williams mentioned on record, I think a couple of years ago, that recently he's been looking into a lot of Rachmaninoff's work and, oh, and yeah. pieces to get a lot of like because because as you know, Rachmaninoff has such a rich, rich set of counter melodies and and harmonies, and his counterpoint is so rich. You know, even playing is is it's not just technically difficult, but you had to like interpret it musically on each and every one of your fingers. It's it's such a rich thing. And John Williams is trying to incorporate that into his own musical style as well, even later on in life. So it's these kinds of inspirations that people don't know about because they have these preconceived misconceptions of the entire industry as a whole. Yeah, no, totally. And I guarantee you, it's like, you put together John Williams music at the symphony and everybody's like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to play you some Schindler's List right now. They're like, oh, this is amazing, right? And it's, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same music. It's putting into context that people understand it. Rachmaninoff is just the same, right? If you used Rachmaninoff piano concerto, well, they did for Shine, right? For film soundtrack. Everybody's like, this is the greatest piece I've ever done. Do you want to go see Rock 3 at the symphony? It's like, oh, I'm not sure I would want to do that, right? So what, you know, that's that's kind of on us. Because if we're creating these misconceptions about what happens at the symphony, you know, that doesn't come from nowhere. That's comes from people's beliefs and what it's used to be like. And it's, uh, it's on us to change that. Absolutely. And it takes a lot of time to change that as well. I mean, even yeah. going back to what we were talking about, like the, like a Strad versus Adele Jezu, 
most people don't know the difference. And the reason why is because there haven't been many conversations like the one that, we, that we're having right now talking about how they are different and the nuances between those as well. It's the same thing with pianos also. With like, What's the difference between a Steinway versus a Fazioli versus a Bussendorfer and versus a Yamaha, a Concert Grand uh, Yamaha? Like, these different piano makers, they, there's these slight tone differences and even how they engineer and handcraft the piano, like the, the, the sound box and the strings and the, the hammer and the action. Like, these things are... They're all fascinating things, but people just don't know about them. So they all think, oh, it's just, it's, it's, they're just all pianos and they all sound great. But, you know, so like it's the importance of, as you said, being able to educate people in a way that they're able to relate to as well, especially for those who have no exposure to, to musical training at all. It's really important to, you know, explain to them in in a language that they can understand. Right. And that's the challenge that we face. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, well, you're just going back to the piano and violin thing is, you know, it's not necessarily that everybody in the audience is going to hear the difference, but it's a tool that allows an artist to create, right? So a great piano is a tool that allows a great pianist to create amazing music and it gives them more range and it gives them more ways to communicate rather than the piano, which limits them, right? And this violin are kind of the same. I'm not expecting, I don't if I would be able to stand in the audience and hear the difference between a Cerruti and a Strad sort of thing, but I'd hear a great artist able to be more true to what they want to do on an instrument that allows them that flexibility. Right. Right. And a good question to ask each person is what, how, what, how do you feel about the music and what is that piece of music to them? Right. So the ability to have them relate to the music, I think is really effective rather than, you know, telling them, Oh, you should be playing, you know, this, this part, faster this part slower well, the whole thing how you should be doing this is an interesting thing with you that you should feel like this i remember yeah recently I, I did a few concerts at jails in ontario and it was you know it's an interesting thing when you're playing music for people that are they're they're locked in a space and they're not going to get out these are maximum security prisons and every single time we went in the person arranging it said this is really important and just trust me on this we're gonna have a conversation with them afterwards because wow. actually the most important thing is not what you are playing. The most important thing is that they get to have a response to it that they can communicate. And I was like, uh, what? I thought I'm playing Vivaldi's Four Seasons here. Isn't that the most important thing? Um, but it's true. We went in, we played Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and then we had like hour-long conversations of what they felt like. And what they wanted was to explain to us, the, the performance on stage, how the music made them feel. And it was really, it was kind of eye opening to me because I'm always I'm always like yeah you play music and then you leave and everybody has their reaction but whatever I played my music my job here is done but in a way it was it was one sided right I communicate something to the audience and then I'm like I'm done see you later that's it go enjoy it by yourself think about it later but in this audience they wanted to communicate back to us how it made them feel and that was how they felt engaged by it and somehow. There was never the thought that I should tell them, well, this is supposed to make you feel like that. That's not my job. I play it and I have a certain idea of it for sure. But then their response is whatever they choose. And music should be like that, right? Your response to it can be whatever you want. And you don't, you're not wrong if you feel a certain way upon listening to a piece. In classical music, sometimes we make people feel bad if their response is not what we expect or something. We make them feel bad. If they clap in the wrong place, we make them feel bad, like things like this. Right. And maybe we can do a better job of not making people feel bad about their responses to music. If somebody wants to clap because it made them feel really excited, 
shouldn't that be a good thing? Like, yay, somebody liked the music I played. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there was there was this one performance that I saw I where Kirsten played the I forgot which concerto it was, but after the first movement, like everybody was already already clapping and already applauding, even standing on their feet. And it's like, that was the first movement. It's like, whoa. Yeah, it's right? like, but the fact that he's able to move them that well, it's like, wow. Yeah. Isn't that a good thing? It's like, yeah. yay. Like people loved what you played. This is what you're aiming for, right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I used to volunteer at a geriatric care center. And sometimes they would have like some TV time and all that kind of stuff. And for me, there, there was one day where this, this was 10 years ago, where I decided to play a Medici.tv live stream. I forgot which, again, it was, it was also a symphony performance. It was uh, the Concert Cabal, I think, at the time. And they, and I just played just a little bit of the first few minutes of it. And I was volunteering on a floor where most of the patients had dementia of some sort. Some of them quite late, like mid-stage or late stage as well. But somehow, the music itself, somehow, just three minutes, some of them were speaking for the first time that I've ever heard them speak. Like I was like, they can speak, number one. And number two, they're like, this is so good. This is like so, like, this is amazing. And they were, start, they were enthusiastic talking to me about it. And I'm just like, that's how powerful music can be, especially classical music. That's how powerful it can be where just three minutes can get a person who is suffering again from late stage dementia to talk and to converse in a way that's, that's wow. It's just, yeah. it, it really hit me at the time. The latest studies on that are just amazing. The way it taps into kind of like memory centers and parts of the brain, which you can't access in other ways and how it really is that binary. It's like, you know, you play some a piece of music that somebody might have heard like 70 years ago and it taps them into being able to actually like respond in a way that they would have 70 years ago and interact and talk again it's 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 kind of amazing you know yeah it cer certainly is and going back to your career so far what are the greatest life lessons that you've learned from everything that you've done so far in your career hmm. i would say the greatest life lesson is is something i learned for my students it's uh, i've had a lot of students come through i was teaching at mcgill full-time for six years i've been teaching at u of t since then a lot of students have come through my studio and it's a kind of it's a tough time in classical music i worry about my students about how they're going to do whether they are they going to be successful are they going to make it in the field are they going to be satisfied and get jobs and make enough money but you know what a hundred percent of my students that have been one dedicated that are willing to work but also curious and creative about what they might be able to bring into the field, what they might be able to offer, what they might want to do. 100% of them have found some sort of niche in the music field, right? And so everybody talks about the death of classical music and it's so hard and all this stuff, but you have more and more people that love it and you have more and more people that are finding interesting and creative things to do with music. You have new fields like music therapy and this sort of stuff. These fields didn't exist when I was in university. And I've learned a lot from them. I no longer try to discourage my students from like, well, it's going to be really hard for you. You're not going to get a job in an orchestra. Maybe you should do something else. But I've realized that when people believe in something and that they're curious about what they have to offer the world, that they generally find the path. And so, you know, just that that lesson, like continually stay curious about what you can do. Don't ever kind of fall into the rut of like, well, this is not going to work. You can't do it. Always be kind of questioning and saying, what do I have to offer? Or what what can I do that's better? What I can learn that's better? What can I be creative with? That there's going to be space. There's going to be space for that sort of way of thinking in the world moving forward. Right, right, right. And as we begin to close this episode, 
what is your advice to those who to violinists currently who want to get in who potentially see performing as a potential career path down the road what's your advice to them as they navigate this very difficult time post covid with their yeah. careers I mean, with their COVID is a whole new wrench right of like the way we do stuff we all learn well we, we learn to do this right we learn to do conversations over the computer and that sort of thing um i think exactly what i was saying before is like well one if you want to career in music you have to work really hard and expect to work really hard your entire life but enjoy the fact that you get to work really hard doing something that you like that you love and be curious about what you might be working hard at exactly. It might not always be sitting in the practice room playing scales. It might be finding other things that you can do. It might be arts administration. Expect to work really hard, but get the satisfaction that what, what you're working hard at is pretty awesome and you're going to have a really nice life out of it. But I also tell them, don't expect that it's going to be something like, oh, one day it's going to be easy and I'm just going to have all the money I need and like arts will be supported and everybody will love it. That's just not going to happen. And that's totally fine. We love what we do. We like working at it and just keep doing it. That's fine. Yeah, great. Great advice to, to, to end on and a great career to also feature as well. Jonathan, thank you so very, very much for coming on to the show and to telling your story. I think everyone is going to enjoy truly the living legend of Jonathan Crow. Thanks so much. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to this episode of This is the Legend of. You've just heard the living legend of Jonathan Crow. You can follow his work on Instagram at Toronto Symphony. That is the Toronto Symphony Orchestra's Instagram page. You can also check out the all of the concerts with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra as well. And be sure to follow us on our social media at This is the Legend of and also our website, www.thisisthelegendof.com, where you'll be up to date with all the latest content. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Signing off for now, this is Amos Van. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay legendary.